This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Heart of a Native. And the author is Tom St. Dennis. And Tom joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tom. Hi, Steve, and thanks for having me on your show. Well, we're looking forward to learning more about Heart of a Native. Uh, We're talking about Native Americans, and this is... uh, Quite a mystery thriller. I want to read this first, uh, what you've written about your book, so everyone understands the, the focus of Heart of a Native. You say this, Heart of a Native is an exciting and easy-to-read new novel about the potential exploitation of the Great Lakes watershed by Wall Street. The book's Native American hero becomes aware of this resource grab and must figure out if or how to balance his personal financial devastation and an economic opportunity with his traditional Native American values. Well, the the, uh, focus, the main character, Jack Clay, uh, he's in rather a predicament. Uh, Tell us why you wrote this book, Tom. What was the the motivation here? Well, Steve, our hero... Jack Clay is, uh, like so many other Americans right now, he had over-leveraged himself on his, on his house. He gets laid off from his job, and, and he's going through that crushing economic reality. So I thought that was relevant. But more important, I, I wrote this because I had an exposure to a teacher in, in junior high, that, and which was during the late 60s and, and 70s when the American Indian movement was very much in the news. And she gave us the historical background to document maybe some of the reasons that the American Indian movement was, was current in the 60s and, and 70s, and it lit my wick. It uh, really made me realize uh, a little bit more deeply about uh, the foundation of America and the concept of manifest destiny, and I knew this book just had to come out of me. Well, let's talk about Jack Clay. He's an interesting character. Tell us about him. Jack's a, a, a man that's drifted away from his uh, native culture. He fully uh, immersed himself in the white man's ways, got uh, reasonably wealthy, started building up uh, a nice portfolio. Unfortunately, he, his wealth was concentrated in real estate, and when the economy crashed and he was no longer able to support his real estate, he began to look at his life in a different fashion. Well, he has an interesting of the confession with a Catholic priest, which he seems really confused about his life. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was great. Um, He thinks he's sinned. He thinks he's uh, just this great sinner. Well, he's frustrated. He doesn't quite know what good all his focus on accumulating money and wealth and status symbols has done for him, and he wonders if it wasn't a, a big mistake. So you focus in this book on North American wisdom and values, and of course it has this theme about, a, I guess, a, uh, a property land grab up around the, the Great Lakes. This theme about what you call Native American Seven Generations Ethic. Now, tell us about that. Well, Steve, if you look at some of the current corporate sustainability uh, initiatives that are out there, they all give tribute to the Native American uh, Iroquois Confederacy, where one of their founding principles for their their confederacy and their, their government was to make sure that no action you do today harms the ability of people seven generations out to use our earth or harms the social structure or in any way impedes their ability to live a good life. That recognition by corporate America today 
my reading over a wide variety of Native American cultural um, views and, and wisdom has shown me that it wasn't just the Iroquois Confederacy. That is, seems to be a fundamental tenet to uh, the Native American uh, ethic that is in all their cultures, most of their cultures throughout the Americas. That is, they look forward seven generations when they deliberate on every action that they do today to make sure they don't disturb the rights of people seven generations out. So in your book, we've got Wall Street greed and political exploitation. Tell us a little bit about that part of the plot. Well, that's where the, uh, the legal thriller part of it comes in, because there's a, a very real possibility that no different than people staking out claims for gold, and of course I refer to uh, the gold rush, no different than people staking out claims for the railroad right-of-ways which happened when they were putting the transcontinental railroad through America, there's a very real potential to stake a claim for the water of the Great Lakes watershed. Now, there's protective mechanisms out there that are going to try to defend that watershed, but with the drying up of the aquifers out west where all of the you know, the, the majority of the agriculture is grown for America and for export. Should that get any drier, I paint a political and economic possibility that the water from the Great Lakes watershed could be drained off to feed those aquifers out west. This Wall Street play is to preempt um, anyone else claiming these water rights and to come in, find a way to get these water rights so that they, they can then sell them to the American government or the American public. Fiction may become reality. <laughs> That's very possible. Well, it's happened before. Uh, you might uh, be prophetic here. Uh, Jack faces a series of personal and ethical challenges. Uh, you have betrayal, even death. So this is, gets pretty serious here. It is. It's fun. I, I, it's, a, it's a short, compact little book. Uh, I'm afraid if I say too much, I'll give away the uh, <laughs> plot. But we really do have um, the, the the death, the betrayals, the the romance. They're not done for anything else other than to deliver home the point that uh, Jack's a regular guy and goes through everyday experiences like all of us. But he's searching for this meaningful life. He is, Steve. And again, it gets back to his time of the confessional with the priest at the start of the book. He's lost his house. He's, he's in the process of just losing everything that he thought was important to him, the big car, the money, the fancy trips around the, the world. And he's beginning to think, does that really matter? What have I done to my life? Is, is what's in my bank account important? Or is the question, should it rather be, um, what have I done for my people and for society? What kind of research did you do for this book? Well, I've got a bookshelf that probably got almost 200 volumes on it of uh, things we've looked at um, everywhere from uh, very commonly available um, Native, American, Native American wisdom books to Native American history and probably everything in between. Some Native American, quote, religious studies. Uh, a lot of anthropology, Steve, as I tried to dig through the cultures of our first Americans and try to see what was going on, especially pre-contact. And, and what I mean by that is the time before the Europeans really moved into America and started to change how our Native Americans were functioning and operating. One of the themes in your book, you say, is coping with economic downsizing. So how do you weave that in? Well, Jack's lost his job. Uh, he's been laid off. He's in real estate, and we all know what's happened in real estate. We're also seeing in both Jack's world um, and our current world uh, governments not being able to provide the services they used to provide. Uh, it seems like everything is less nowadays, and I think that's a, a great point to set the book in because I think a lot of us are asking that same question. What really is relevant? How much do we need? Why do we need it? 
and what should we be focusing on. We want to talk about a couple of uh, great scenes. You uh, you say uh, you're, one of your favorites is Jack's interview with the Wall Street hotshot on his private jet. Yeah, we, that was a fun one. Um, he's uh, It's a local airport here. He gets out, he goes on the giant plane, and uh, we have white-gloved attendants. We have the leather seats. We have the burled wood. And it's, um, it's a fascinating because I entitled the chapter Opportunity Versus Possibility. And the opportunity that the Wall Street hotshot gives to Jack, because Jack is so connected in northern Michigan and could perhaps uh, stitch together his devious plan, um, is not something that Jack immediately is attracted to, but he's tempted by it. And Jack instead proposes a possible approach which is based more on the Native American seven generations ethic that perhaps could satisfy both Wall Street as well as his Native American seven generations ethic. And that, to me, sets up the core conflict of the book. And another scene is where Jack spends an afternoon with his grandfather. Oh, it's, I'm so lucky to live here in northern Michigan. So I describe a scene in a place that I know intimately. Uh, on a little lake uh, just north of, of my house here in Manistee. And Jack um, is able to sit down with his grandfather like he hasn't for 20 years since he walked out on him. It was a, he had a tough childhood. He sits down with his grandfather, and his grandfather is able to quite intelligently speak about things that have happened to the Native Americans as they were conquered by the Europeans. But he doesn't speak about it with animosity. And he doesn't, doesn't let it dominate his life or his direction. Instead, the grandfather lays out to Jack how awareness of what happened doesn't have to be the arbiter of how things have to be. He alludes to Jack that there's another way that can combine both the good of the white man and the Native American and again goes to that core conflict of what is Jack finally going to do. And one of the more controversial aspects of your message, uh, in your book you say, this book tries to creatively and constructively deal with our current transition from a me society to one where shared sacrifice is becoming our new normal. Yeah, it's, uh, we're all getting a little bit of a dose of that I think every day. Um, I, I took that concept for what we see day-to-day -day in the newspapers, and I put it into, again, the context of a seven-generations ethic of a more pure sustainability concept. In other words, how man's on this planet for how long and how much longer, and how are our actions today going to affect the ability of our... Um, of those that are soon to be born and soon to come, their ability to enjoy this planet. And I think with the focus on excess consumption that's perhaps been from the, you know, through the 50s up through the 90s and 2000s and Wall Street greed, of course, being a, a huge issue, um, we try to show how we can learn more and perhaps better ways to operate in a society still giving uh, people plenty of freedom, and at the same time uh, look forward to protecting the interest of the next seven generations. So going away from the me society to the we, more focus on the we, that we are here together to help each other and we need to work together. And, and you know, our, our Native Americans, uh, a lot of more subsistence uh, um, nations, and I think it becomes ingrained in your blood and in your DNA, when you have to survive on what Mother Nature gives you, you learn to respect Mother Nature. And whether it's Mother Nature's resources that we, the standard understanding, or if it's even money and government services, we need to adapt to what's available. So I think the book tries to give us a, a construct for how we might think through how to adapt with what's available to us. Heart of a Native is only the first of a planned series of fictional works. Yeah, we're uh, 
I've got the writing bug, Steve. I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited. I've got uh, I've got my second um, uh, Jack and Lisa novel. Lisa, who was uh, a part of the uh, this first book, I've got a second book um, drafted, and uh, that's going to also address some some different challenges that we see both in our current day and, and maybe look at a traditional way for for resolving them. And then I'm doing something that I'm more comfortable with as an attorney and, and haven't been a, a corporate guy. Is I'm also looking at a nonfiction. Um, and, again, I'm going to address traditional Native wisdom and its application to today's society in, in some specific narrow uh, focuses. So it's... Um, I'm quite excited about what the uh, next year or two has has got to bring forward. The title of the book, Heart of a Native, and the author is Tom St. Dennis. Tom, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's it's available uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iUniverse Bookstore. Um, I've been shocked to see the price differences, so I would always suggest that people shop the the sites. Um, But it's out there and, and broadly available. Thank you for being with us, Tom, on iUniverse Radio. We appreciate it. Nice, uh, nice being with you and talking to you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle. And sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Seeking the Edge, Thoughts on Wisdom and Success. And the author is Dr. Joseph L. Rose. And Dr. Rose joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Rose. Yes, hello, Steve. Great to have you with us, Uh, Wisdom and Success. uh, We certainly need that today, and you're going to show us how to become successful, seeking the edge. Um, Sometimes we don't want to jump out of our comfort zones. I guess you're going to show us how to do that. Let me read what you've written about your book uh, to set the stage for our discussion. You say this, The edge is that small line between excellence and mediocrity that little extra something that pushes you to a different level in life. Education and intelligent thinking can often provide the edge. Mediocrity breeds mediocrity, so we have no choice but to find the edge if we wish to distinguish ourselves in life. 
Well, that is very well put, and we're going to talk about some of these details about your book, Seeking the Edge. Let's learn a little bit about you, Dr. Rose, what you do, and uh, why you decided to write your book. Okay. I, uh, I am a professor in engineering at Penn State University. I've been involved with uh, uh, being a professor for over 30 years now, and I am also president of a small company, FBS, and this company actually takes the fundamental work that we're doing into the university and via technology transfer, we're developing products and so on that are involved with safety and, and saving lives and so on with respect to our aging infrastructure. With respect to the motivation for writing the book, I found out that over the years, students really need this book. In fact, everyone that I talk to needs it. There's so much material that a person needs to survive in life, to do well, to succeed, that is not taught in the classroom. I've actually, as a result, be, become obsessed with seeking the edge, that fine line between excellence and mediocrity. It's such a fine line at so many times, and I find out for these students to learn some of the things that are discussed in the book, the topics of, as an example in seeking the edge of opportunity, of character, of worth, of experience, of negotiation, of preparedness, of thinking, on happiness and pleasant thoughts in general, on life lessons, and various aspects of business thoughts are just not taught, not covered in the classroom. So students graduate or they move into life, whether it be from high school, from a community college or a college at any level, bachelor, degree, master, PhD even. They need help to be able to do well. It's that fine edge. These topics have to be covered. I find that so often these students really, when they graduate, sit in the corner somewhere, not exactly sure what to do. But I'm trying to promote them, bring, wake them up, instill a tremendous spirit in their lives that they can accomplish a great deal that people that they admire or mentor, they too can become like them. And I have so many tools in this book to seek the edge, that tiny fine line, to be able to achieve wisdom and success in life. So your book is a collection of short stories on these topics that you've just uh, given to us. And I find it interesting that you say major benefits were thought to be mostly to individuals between the ages of 17 and 40, but you found that children between 10 and 17 also benefit by talking about these, uh, these great of, of areas of, of wisdom for success. Absolutely. I've been, I've been so surprised that young people, 9, 10, 12 years old and so on, I read these stories, and maybe the interpretation wasn't always exactly what I intended, but nevertheless, fantastic, got them thinking about something different than what they learned in school. And I always believe that the best things that you can ever learn or study on your own are the things that motivate you yourself, because we all can take orders and do homework and so on. But when you do something extra, it means so much more in your life. And this is a quick, a short path, if you will, to a journey to success by understanding some of these things. So young people, and I found that even older people that look some of these stories are just amazed by some of the ideas here and actually want to make contributions of some things that have happened in their life or relate to something particular in their own life. And I found out that with working with people over the years of all the stories in the book, there are certain ones that really take hold in their life. It plays such an important role. I've had students visit me, and they bring back different stories, and there's always something different that had a tremendous impact and influence in their life to move them towards that success area. Your so book, anyway, that, that's the kind of the motivation. Your book is filled with these life lessons, and uh, you've become known as the storytelling professor. So let's, uh, Dr. Rose, let's... Let's go into some details about some of these stories. Uh, let's begin with your first chapter of Opportunity. What's a story you'd like to share with us out of that section called Opportunity? Okay, uh, what an interesting uh, idea here with Opportunity is 
we all have to set goals in our lives. And we kind of imagine a journey through a forest with all sorts of difficulties and, and, and difficult encounters. But we imagine at the end of the rainbow a pot of gold. That's the goal that we set in our life. And in order to seek the edge here, what I'm trying to say is as you journey towards that goal, and the goal can change every day in your life, but you must always have one. It's like seek, moving towards that pot of gold. But we must be aware because in our journey, if we look left or right or take a detour, there could be smaller pots of gold. We can't ignore them. We have to have our eyes, ears, and mind wide open to recognize these other opportunities. Perhaps a slight detour could be the biggest thing that ever happened in our life. So that's what that story is all about in more detail, of course. Now let's talk about uh, experience. What could you tell us there? Give us a story about experience. Okay. Uh, an interesting thing with respect to experience is, uh, is something that I teach and talk about to everyone that I've ever worked with. And they ask me, maybe, what is the favorite thing that I can ever do? And the answer is to use the trash can. It's kind of crazy, but so many people are so obsessed with reporting and carrying through the work that they've done, the education that they've had to date, all the work tasks and so on. But just so often we have to stop and think, are we on the right path? Throw it away. This allows us to begin over. I mean, especially people that are involved in, in new projects or research activities and so on. Quite often we're on the wrong path and we have to begin over, but people are reluctant to do so. But that time is not lost because that journey in the wrong direction and the errors that we may have made teach us a great deal. So when we throw things into the trash can, we begin over with a totally different approach. We can now do it more efficiently, more enthusiastically, and so on. So that's one of the things that the one of the stories that I tell associated with experience. It can be applicable to so many things in your life. Over these last 35 years, you've been focused on helping many, many Ph.D. students. You've been the principal advisor to over 60 Ph.D. students, and that's how you gained this, this uh, kind of a, uh, inside look at what motivates people and some of their challenges because, obviously, people can get can feel like they're up against the brick wall and there's nothing working for them. That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's just so much fun. I find out in even some of my undergraduate classes, if the class goes for one hour, the last five or six minutes, the students all remind me it's a storytelling time. Let's get going to some new lesson. And then sometimes we'll go into the next class where the first part I presented, the students feel kind of low and unhappy and the next class, we follow through with some new, exciting closure to the story that motivates and drives them forward. So it's, uh, it's been tremendous fun. And the feedback and interaction from the students is just amazing. It's just fantastic. Let's talk about a chapter called Thinking. Give us a story there from that chapter titled Thinking. Okay, and, and thinking, it's just absolutely amazing what thinking can do for you in your life things can change, the outlook and so on. There could be the same conditions for five people, yet their thinking and handling can be so different. But the one story that I'd like to maybe describe here, I call the Think Smart Farmer. I talked to, to students in my class, one of, one of my very interesting stories. I talk, talk about taking a year off on a sabbatical from the university to help the poor people, starving people in the world. And I end up working 24 hours a day almost, almost every day of the week, hardly any sleep. And I work in the, the fields and till the soil and pick crops and do so many things. I work so hard. And the productivity for that whole year increases by about 1% because of my hard work. Well, a few years later, I tell the students I went on a second sabbatical. But this time of that entire year, I only worked two days. And the rest of the entire year, I spent playing golf and doing all sorts of fun things all over the world. Well, what did I do for those two days? Well, I was involved in some chemistry experiments and came up with some special potassium nitrate kind of fertilizers. 
invented this, gave it to the farmers, they used it in their fields, and the productivity that year improved by 300%. So this story kind of points out the benefit of thinking smart and handling situations differently. Now, in your chapter called Life Lessons, what would you like to share with us? Okay. Uh, there's just so many interesting things in, in, in life lessons that we could talk about. There's a story called Blow Your Horn, Blow Your Own Horn. And the idea there, of course, is we have to tell people what we've accomplished. We talk about the, the, the uh, two-minute elevator ride and the CEOs beside you, and you have to tell them quickly. You have to blow your own horn to let people know what's going on. But the story, let me just uh, illustrate here very briefly. It's called Be Positive and Recognize Victory. So many times in life people give a presentation. Probably an easy one would be to consider a, a court of law and a lawyer talking to the judge and so on. And what happens, the, the, the lawyer presents his case, and the judge, for some reason or another, dismisses the case, and, and it's all over, and, and the lawyer says, hold it, wait a minute, I've worked so hard, I've prepared so many responses here, I want to tell you a little bit more. So then the judge says, well, okay, let me hear your story. So he starts telling his story, he starts digging a little hole for himself, he goes a little bit further, and the judge says, oh, my gosh, let's reopen this case. I didn't realize it. Let's look at this again. And the idea is recognize victory. Even when you're selling something to someone, if the person says, send me a purchase order, I'll buy it. Stop talking. You can only dig a hole a little bit further. So it's kinds of things like this that are outlined in, in some of these stories. Seeking the edge is a daily, daily process, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm just so, so obsessed. And in fact, one thing that got me started, even as a, as a young kid, people would talk about race cars and so on, and they would use a, a special little element, chemical element that they would put into their gasoline mixture to have a, a cleaner burning combustion process. And this was the edge. It was advertised as the edge, the special product, to be able to go a little tiny bit faster. And you can look at so many things in life. <clears throat> in fact, if you look at uh, uh, the sailing systems that look at the sailing competitions around the world, there are just tiny mechanical changes in, 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 in the sail or so that can achieve victory. So seeking the edge, I've just constantly looked at it my entire life. Look at golf tournaments. They're won over 72 holes by one stroke. Yet the winner by one stroke wins many, many tournaments by one stroke. It's the extra, it's the extra effort, the energy, the practice, the dedication, the commitment, seeking that edge that can achieve that for you. And don't ever, ever give up. Absolutely. Don't ever, ever give up. I mean, so many people have, have said this. Winston Churchill is an example. Uh, Eisenhower during World War II and so many other people, you never know where success might be right around the corner. Never, never give up. But be willing to change direction a little bit, set different goals, do something else, but be in pursuit. And, and this will achieve that tremendous benefit of wisdom and success in your life. Seeking the Edge will help you learn, appreciate, and grasp the opportunities that can lead to the real success stories of your life. And of course, Dr. Rose has shared in this book many, many ways to accomplish the great goals that he has set out. Dr. Rose, give us some closing thoughts. Okay, I guess uh, with respect to the, the closing thoughts, the key messages that, that I would like to, to get across, number one, if you want to become well-intentioned, skilled, and self-motivated to be successful in life, this book could be good for you. Secondly, of course, read the book to describe the edge in more detail. Thirdly, become independent by seeking the edge and acquiring wisdom and success so that you can move beyond an entitlement society and succeed on your own. Fourthly, the difference between mediocrity and excellence is a fine line. As mentioned several times in this discussion, one must seek the edge, the extra effort, in order to achieve excellence. And finally, seeking the edge can be found in the chapters in the book of opportunity, character, 
development, value considerations, experience, and negotiation skills, and thinking, and appreciating happiness, pleasant thoughts, life lessons in general, and implying basic business principles in life. We've been listening to Dr. Joseph L. Rose. He is the author of his book, Seeking the Edge, Thoughts on Wisdom and Success. Dr. Rose, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get this book by from iUniverse. Uh, the website's available and so on. Or if you just type my name in, Joseph L. Rose, it's available on Amazon and many other uh, areas and facilities and organizations that would sell books. Dr. Rose, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. Take care. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to My Radio Show is unbiased, and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to My Radio Show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Deadly Pleasures. And the author is Mary Furman, and Mary joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Mary. Hi there, Steve. How are you? Well, good to have you with us. We're going to talk about this plot, this fiction that you have written, uh, but it may be true to life today with uh, everything that's going on in society. But let's uh, let me read what you've written about Deadly Pleasures. You say this, Deadly Pleasures is about Megan and her three best friends who hire a timeshare boy toy, unaware he is the prime suspect in a series of grisly murders. So we're talking about uh, we're talking about sex and death here, murder, right? Correct. Um, Blue Ink called it "Sex in the City Meets James Patterson." All right. Well, and a lot of people ask you. Uh, you know, this big question, and it's like the one question you most often get. What's that question? What? How did you get your idea? And, and what's your answer to that? My answer to that is years ago when I was living in Hollywood, I heard about four men who hired a woman to be their girl toy, so to speak, and they paid her rent and... Uh, made her available for their favors. So I was going to write a book about the four guys and the woman, and I started thinking, well, why can't the women do that? And so that was the concept that first came to me, 
and it seemed much more interesting, much more forbidden, and uh, I thought it would be fun to write a book around that. So Megan Riley, she's the main character. Riley, Megan Riley, yeah. Tell us about her. Well, Megan, you know, there's an old saying, it's hard to find sympathy for a girl on a yacht. And <laughs> I thought that Megan was a wonderful counterpart to that because she's a working girl. She sells real estate and she's broke. She's uh, trying to fit in with all of these rich women that are living a life of luxury and I found that an interesting idea, plus the fact that she's newly sober and she has this uh, going against her and the boyfriend that she was supposed to be engaged to has gone and so she's kind of in a down mode and when they come up with this idea of paying for a boy toy, she just has no idea where she's going to get the money from. And so basically, uh, Megan is the main character that does all the additional investigating, falls in love with the detective. She's kind of the sane one of the four. So we've got this, as you describe him, this hunky stripper, Michael Harrington. Uh, He's the timeshare boy toy. Now, is he a main character in the book? No, he isn't. Um, The two main characters are Megan Riley, I just described, and the detective, Matt Donovan. They are the two points of view that I use, and the boy toy is kind of an extra. they, They have to go through two or three scenes where they try other guys, and nobody can agree on anything, which was what Megan was hoping in the first place. And they finally go to a uh, luncheon for somebody's wedding shower. And out of the blue appears this stripper. And they all agree that if they're going to do it, this is the one they're going to do it with. So Kathleen, uh, there's Alex and Kathleen and Rachel. These are Megan's friends. Tell us about them. Well, Kathleen... um, is married to a TV anchorman, not unlike yourself, Steve. And he is a cheater. He cheats on her, and they're getting a divorce. She is very mild-mannered girl and is crying every five minutes because of this uh, failed marriage. And uh, she's kind of the, the one everybody takes care of. Rachel is a high-powered attorney who gave up her job to be married to a screenwriter who is also a big cheater. He has a yacht in the marina that he cheats on regularly. Alex is married to a real estate tycoon who is a big developer in the marina. And uh, she has her problems with him. She's quite a bit younger and, you know, they're kind of the May-December marriage. And the four of them uh, go over their problems and how bored they are and blah, blah, blah. And they finally decide on this attempt with the boy toy to brighten up their lives and give, get back at their husbands. And, of course, they don't know at first that this could be a serial killer. Correct. They they don't know until Megan starts dating the detective. The, Megan goes out with the detective and discovers that they um, this guy Michael Harrington is a prime suspect in these murders. Your book so, is your book is described as a fun casual read with lots of infidelity, jealousy, revenge, murder, deviant sex, and a little romance thrown in now. <laughs> How did you learn to write such stuff? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was not a, um, a trained writer. Um, I started classes at UCLA with a friend of mine. We went to a, 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 a class that was called How to Write the Bestseller. 
And we kind of went for something to do, and we both fell in love with the process. Uh, out of this meet, uh, this class at UCLA, we met a woman named Marjorie Miller, and we went to classes every week for many years with Marjorie, who produced several really good published writers. Um, I was writing a different book from this altogether. I was writing a book called Voodoo Fire, and that was where I, I think I learned what I did about the craft. And later, when I started this book, we had so much fun with it, and I had so much fun writing it, and my husband and I had so much fun going and checking out the apparatus that, um, you know, it stuck with me, and I, I managed to complete it, and there you have it. So Detective Matt Donovan, he's investigating the death of George Fisher, uh, who's a neighbor, and he's died in the arms of a Venice hooker. So Correct. So uh, so it's kind of a, it's a bondage murder case is what it's being called? Yes. What does that mean? The bondage murders, because the there's a lot of hookers dying, and they're when they find them, they're in the bondage apparatus and the handcuffs and the leather and the whole bit. Um, this I, I learned from a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist, and he directed me into certain books that would explain this phenomena. And then uh, my husband and I went downtown to a place in uh, West Hollywood called I can't remember the name of it, Treasure Chest, I think it was. And they had all this apparatus and leather and handcuffs, and we uh, we got a big charge out of that, and um, I learned what the stuff looked like. And uh, after some reading and figuring out what they did, that's how it came to me. It was different than just an ordinary murder, so, you know, it uh, gave it a little more flavor. One of the themes in your book, and we'll talk about these, but uh, the first one you say is women's sexual freedom. I think we all know where that's gone since the invention of the pill. Women have progressively improved their sexual status. I mean, you just watch any of the TV shows like Sex in the City, The Housewives, The Bachelor, all these people are, it, it's beyond sexual freedom. It's, it's into promiscuity, I would venture. And uh, I just thought that this was a fun way of getting that out there. My intention was not to liberalize women even more. It was just to use it as part of the scenario where these four women could do such a thing. Tell us about Detective Matt Donovan. Give us some insight into his character. Detective Matt Donovan is a widow. His wife died uh, three years previous of uh, cancer, and he has an 18-year-old daughter who is a model in New York. He constantly worries about this daughter in New York. He has uh, visions when he goes to these crime scenes, he worries about his daughter and it could be her and all, all of this. He's a very likable character and um, Megan falls for him immediately. And so there's some interaction, there's some back and forth and she's kind of following her own little investigation and she keeps running into him and you know with a with, with um in a terrible situation she's caught in this sex club and she's hiding and trying not to see to have Donovan find her it's it's a kind of very intertwined progressive relationship and Megan kind of becomes a detective herself on her own that's right she she's worried about her friend who's following her husband around and trying to catch him red-handed, and she lands up in some pretty terrible situations. <laughs> A lot on uh, mega yachts and Catalina Island. 
Yes, Catalina Island is a favorite of mine. My husband and I had a boat, and we spent almost every weekend for years in Catalina. So I'm very familiar with it and its beauty and its treachery as far as the waters are concerned. And um, So they go on a trip with the Yacht Club to Catalina Island, and there's one more body found there. Well, when you have a siller, uh, serial killer, there's always one more body. Always one there? more body. Yes. <laughs> when, when the action's lagging, have another body. Have another body show up on the beach, yes. Um, another, another main message, theme in your book, how we all handle bad relationships and sometimes make the wrong choices. We do. We make a lot of wrong choices, and... Uh, you know, every everyone does the best they can. You know, there's really, there's really no good way or or bad way to handling a relationship. It's it's all dependent on the person going through it and the amount of trauma that's present. Uh, Rachel sneaks up and catches her husband on the boat. You know, maybe she should have stayed home that night. Um, you know, uh, Megan has already broken up with her boyfriend because he's a drinker and she's trying to stay sober. Uh, Kathleen, as the um, TV anchorman, he's already got another woman and she's pregnant. So there's a lot of complications and everybody handles it differently. And, you know, that's the way it is in real life. You know, what I would do may be different than what you would do. I would probably tie him up in a bondage position and leave him. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the bottom line is money alone does not make you happy. No, that's the truth. And I've seen that a lot in my experience in life, that uh, the wealthy uh, have just as many problems as we do, and oftentimes more because they have a bigger stage to play on, and they get more get can get into more trouble uh if you have a lot of money you're able to do what you want and then that sometimes isn't the best course of action so you know it's they have problems the same way we do the title of the book deadly pleasures and the author is mary Furman. mary tell us how to get your book um it's for sale on amazon.com barnesandnoble.com iUniverse.com, Kindle, and uh, if you go to my website, MaryFerman.com, you can buy it there. And soon to be seen on TV. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. That would be nice. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, Mary, thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, and nice to talk to you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.